It's a joy for me to be here because, as you know, I had the wonderful honor and privilege and huge pleasure of writing the official biography of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And Cumberland Lodge was something which was very dear to her heart. And uh, she was present at the creation, and she retained a great and uh, intimate, kindly interest in it throughout her life, and visiting it often because she lived just down the road at Royal Lodge and so on. And I, I think that, well, I know that the basis of her interest in Cumberland Lodge and starting it and her cherishing its success, which continues today, witness the enormous number of people in this room um, and the remarkable list of programs and achievements that Alistair has nourished over the last 10 years with the rest of his extremely effective staff. She was overjoyed that, the, that it could have had such success. And on her 80th birthday, the then principal, Walter James, wrote to her to tell her that her work for Cumberland Lodge was the most striking contribution to university life made by a member of the royal family this century. Um, and many of the people who visited Cumberland Lodge over the years from 1947, when, as Alistair said, it was created, and thereafter were often taken to see her at Royal Lodge when had tea or better still a drink with her. Uh, <laughs> the Queen Mother, as you know, Queen Elizabeth, was, uh, was always, as you know, fond of um, a glass of something fresh. <laughs> and um, when she was first pregnant with Princess Elizabeth, she wrote to a friend, I feel absolutely terrible. Wine makes me feel quite ill. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if I never recover my drinking powers? <laughs> well... She need not have worried. Um, January 1927, when Princess Elizabeth was only six months or eight months old, she and the Duke had to leave for a long, almost a year, eight-month tour of Australasia um, uh, by ship. And in those days, there was absolutely no question of taking infants with you. And um, they left from their home in London, and she was very overcome with emotion, she wrote, um, the next day she had to leave and the nanny brought prin the princess down to, to say goodbye to them and uh, she said that when, when, she was, when the baby was playing with the buttons on her father's naval uniform it quite broke me up and then and she said, and this was a phrase that my editor said was going to be her watchword from now on I took a sip of champagne and tried not to weep <laughs> That was, very, that was very much her attitude to life, take a sip of champagne and try not to weep. But most of the time, most of the time she didn't weep, she laughed and uh, enjoyed herself enormously. Um, in, in the 1980s, she um, gave a party for 200 bishops um, and other senior members of the clergy. And uh, she wrote to Princess Margaret, she said, by the time that 8 o'clock came, it was a cocktail party at... Uh, at um, Clarence House. By the time that eight o'clock came, they were all in cracking form. <laughs> Especially the American bishops who were tossing down martini after martini. <laughs> I'm sure that they'd been entertained on only weak sherry for the, four, for the weeks beforehand. <laughs> anyway, she certainly knew how to enjoy herself. Um, but on a more serious note, Christianity and, and the love of God was something that was very, very very much part of her. She was brought up as the ninth out of ten children in a very remarkable Anglo-Scottish aristocratic family, the Strathmores, as you know. And their mother, Cecilia, was a st stunning 
mother and woman, um, who instructed all her, her children in love of family, love of country, and love of God. And Elizabeth was, like all the other, her brothers and sisters, knelt by her bed every night to say her prayers, a, a custom that she maintained all of her life. And she was a, a, div, a very devout person, as well as a very, and, and, and a spiritual person, as well as a very humorous one for her entire life. And, um, and I think that was certainly why she um, was so interested in the work of Cumberland Lodge, um, which I'll get to in, in a moment. But I would just like to read to you, if I may, I know I haven't got very much time, but um, a, a note that she wrote to herself, which um, uh, on, the, on the day that war began, on September the 3rd, the day after war began, in 1939, and this I found in the Royal Archives. The great joy, of course, of being the official biographer of a king and queen is that you have completely unfettered access to the Royal Archives and unique access. No one else gets the joy of seeing those, all those private letters of the royal family um, in the archives, except the official, any official biographer. Anyway, there was, I found in the archives a four-page note that she had written herself on the day after war broke out. And she uh, uh, gives a sense of her, first of all, how wonderfully she wrote, she wrote and of her spirituality, I think. I wish to try and set down on paper some of the impressions that remain from this ghastly day, Sunday, September the 3rd, 1939. And yet when one tries to find words, how impossible and how inadequate they are to convey even an idea of the torture of mind that we went through. Having tried by every means in our power to turn Hitler from his purpose of wantonly attacking the Poles and having been practically ignored by the Nazis, we knew on the night of September the 2nd that our request for a withdrawal of German troops from Poland would be refused, so we went to bed with sad hearts. I woke early the next morning at about 5.30. I said to myself, we have only a few hours of peace left, and from then until 11 o'clock every moment was an agony my last cup of tea in peace, my last bath at leisure, and all the time one's mind wandering on many th thoughts, chiefly of the people of this country, their courage, their sense of humour, their sense of right and wrong. How will they come through the wicked things that war lets loose? One thing is that they are at their best when things are bad, and their spirit is wonderful. At 10.30, I went to the king's sitting room, and we sat quietly talking, until at 11.15 the Prime Minister broadcast his message from Downing Street that as the Germans had ignored our communications, we were at war. He spoke so quietly, so sincerely, and was evidently deeply moved and unhappy. I could not help tears running down my face, but we both realised that it was inevitable. If there was to be any freedom left in our world, we must face down the cruel Nazi creed and rid ourselves of this continual nightmare of force and material standards. Hitler knew quite surely that when he invaded Poland, he started a terrible war. What kind of mentality could he have? As we were thinking these things, suddenly from outside the window came the ghastly, horrible wailing of the air raid silent. The king and I looked at each other and said, it can't be, but there it was. And with beating hearts, we went down to our shelter in the basement. We felt stunned and horrified and sat waiting for bombs to fall. After half an hour, the all-clear went, and we returned to our rooms, and then we prayed together. We prayed with all our hearts that peace would come soon, real peace, not a Nazi peace. 
Well, um, uh, that's pretty moving, I think, and, and of course it didn't come soon. It took six years almost of uh, unbelievably um, brutal warfare, uh, during which time the king and queen played a very, very important role in this country's effort, as you know, with, along with Churchill in keeping the morale of the country high. And they spent, they spent uh, most days in, um, in, like in London and Buckingham Palace when they weren't traveling around the country or into the east end of London to visit areas that had been bombed or uh, other areas that needed their, their succor. And um, the queen was, um, was, was constant and constant in her belief um, rightness of our cause. She wrote on one occasion to Eleanor Roosevelt, who came to visit and stayed in Buckingham Palace and, um, after all its windows had been blown out by bombs. She wrote, Sometimes one's heart seems near breaking under the stress of so much sorrow and anxiety. When we think of our gallant young men being sacrificed to the terrible machine that Germany has created, I think that anger perhaps predominates. But when we think of their valour, their determination and their great grand spirit, Pride and joy are uppermost. We're all prepared to sacrifice everything in the fight to save freedom. And the curious thing is that already many false values are going, and life is becoming simpler and greater every day. But despite the horrors of the war, she didn't lose her sense of humor um, and nor her um, enjoyment of a glass of something. And um, on one occasion, she wrote to Elizabeth, in 1942, she wrote to Elizabeth Elphinstone, her niece, who eventually became deputy warden here at, um, at uh, Cumberland Lodge. And Elizabeth was working as a nurse in uh, Edinburgh at the beginning of the war, and she wanted to come south, but there was still at that time a great fear of invasion by the Germans. And um, so the, the, her, her trip south was delayed in case of invasion, in case she couldn't get back to her hospital and so on. So... The Queen wrote to Elizabeth in Edinburgh and said, Darling, I rang up old Hitler and quite politely asked him to make up his mind for once and all about his beastly old invasion. If he wasn't going to risk it well and good, but if he was going to come, well, for goodness sake, he must decide now. I told him that apart from the trouble of having to mine the beaches and the perpetual sharpening of the home guard's pikes, that my niece, Miss Elphinstone, was having her plans held up and she really must be considered a little... After a good deal of havering and evasions, I pinned him down to saying that the end of March was okay. You'd be able to come south with a clear conscience and no risk of being cut off from your hospital. I shall look forward to seeing you so very much. I'm afraid that London is rather gloomy, with nobody to ring up or to go and see. Sometimes one feels quite lonely. It is so rare to see a friend. But how very exciting when one dear old face turns up. <laughs> so, um, at the end of the war... Um, she felt very strongly that um, um, Christianity was vital to the recovery of Britain. And she detested, as in that first letter I wrote to you, that, read to you, that she talked about uh, the materialist standards. She detest, detested what she saw as and called materialism of both Nazism and communism. And she was increasingly concerned about what she saw as the decline of traditional Christian belief. Um, and as you all know, the, um, the, the original idea of Cumberland Lodge came from um, Amy Buller, who had, uh, was a rather wonderful Christian pedagogue and um, writer who had traveled in the 1930s in Germany and written a book called Darkness Over Germany, 
which the um, Queen had been sent by her friend, the Bishop of Lichfield, who was very much her Edward Wood, who was rather her spiritual guide. And um, Miss Buller had written this extraordinary book showing the ease with which the Nazis had seduced one of the most civilized, perhaps the most civilized country in Europe. And Amy Buller wrote in this wonderful book, I think, uh, that if it could happen in Germany, it could happen in England or anywhere else as well. And the Queen was uh, struck by the book and asked to meet Amy Buller, which she did at Buckingham Palace in 1944. And Miss Buller called this meeting her miracle because she very much impressed the Queen. And, um, and when Miss Buller spoke of her ambition to create a Christian college, or found a, a college founded on Christian principles anyway, the Queen said she'd like to help. And she was as good as her word, and the question, the problem was first to find a building. And she tried to get um, Queen Mary interested and see if there was room at part of the Royal College of St. Catharines in Regent's Park. Um, Amy Buller, she wrote to Queen Mary, hopes to attract teachers of psychology, science, and medicines, and other disciplines from universities all around the country. For many of them seem to be almost pagans these days, and there seems to be absolutely nowhere where clever people can go to study and discuss the Christian way of life from an intellectual point of view. So she wasn't saying everybody has to be um, a Christian believer to come here, but if Cumberland Lodge was to be, or, or what Amy Buller was trying to create, was a college um, where Christian, the Christian point of view and Christian ethics could be discussed in the context of everyday life. And in the end, as Alistair said, um, she and the king uh, uh, decided to give Cumberland Lodge um, to Amy Buller, and it was created in 1947. And um, the queen wrote to Elizabeth, whom she'd written to about Hitler before Elizabeth Elphinstone, say, I do take it very seriously, and I'm quite certain that it is doing and will do immense good. And uh, for the rest of her life, as I mentioned, she remained immensely interested in uh, Cumberland Lodge. And... Um, and, uh, and, and all that was done here. And I know she would be very proud that it is still carrying on today. And as I mentioned, she often had people over from, um, from Cumberland Lodge to, to Royal Lodge, and one of them, the preacher at Harvard University, Peter Gomez, who came to tea with her in the 80s, was struck by the fact that she, she said to him, tell me, do you give them good news from the pulpit? I do like good news on a Sunday. <laughs> Which is, uh, sensible attitude, I think. Um, and um, she, she, she was very much, all of her life, um, a glass-half-full person, not the reverse. And um, towards the end of her life in 1997, actually not that far, I mean, quite, still quite a long way to go, she was discussing with, um, 1996 it was, discussing with um, Princess Diana, uh, who was then divorced from Prince Charles, but with whom she remained and kept in touch, and Michael, Major Michael Parker, who was the great impresario of the Royal Tournament and, um, had dis and, and other royal events. She was discussing her um, 100th birthday events, uh, in a celebration in five years to come. Um, and um, Princess Diana said, we're so looking forward to your 100th birthday. And Queen Elizabeth said, oh, you mustn't say that. It's unlucky. I mean, I'm I might be run over by a big red bus. And Major Parker said, I think that's rather unlikely, ma'am. <laughs> and, and to which Queen Elizabeth replied, no, no, it's the principle of the thing. Wouldn't it be terrible if you spent all your life doing everything you were supposed to do? You didn't drink, you didn't smoke, you didn't eat things, you took lots of exercise. 
all the things you didn't want to do, and suddenly one day you were run over by a big red bus. <laughs> and as the wheels were crunching into you, you'd say, oh my God, I could have got so drunk last night. <laughs> that's, that's the way you should re- live your life, as if you were about to be run over by a big red bus. Anyway, um, and that is how she lived her life, and that, I think, is the secret of why she was so extraordinarily popular in this country, because people understood that that was that spirit of optimism um, uh, uh, and almost jubilation, which she had all through her life from childhood onwards, was what informed her most. And uh, she died on Easter Saturday here at Royal Lodge, which, as you know, is a Holy Saturday, a contemplative day for Christians. And the following week uh, in, in 2002, just before the Queen's Golden Jubilee, almost 10 years ago. And um, the scenes of people queuing through the cold March <clears throat> nights in the week to come to wait to pass by her body, her coffin in Westminster Hall, were quite astonishing and a, a very good lesson to the new Labour government of the time, which was never expected any such tributes to her. Um, when the Queen went to visit her coffin in, in Westminster Hall after it was taken there at the beginning of her lying in state, the Queen was clapped all the way back to the palace uh, up uh, uh, Guards and up the Mall. And uh, she said that when she got back to the palace that that was one of the most moving things that had ever happened to her. Um, George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said in um, his closing address that um, she had about her, he quoted George Eliot's lovely phrase, she had the sweet presence of a good diffused. And um, in conclusion, I would just like to quote another thing that the Archbishop, another Archbishop of Canterbury wrote to her in 1939. He said, I feel inclined to, just as war began, I feel inclined to say to your majesty what was said in the Bible story to Queen Esther, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That was true in 1939, and I think it remained true for the rest of her life and through all her life. And I think that the success of Cumberland Lodge, it's wonderful that Alistair and the rest of you have carried on the work that she was so eager to start in 1947. Thank you so much. Thank you.